Adam and Eve. The history of salvation, which is the history of the relationship between Almighty God and the human race, begins when God created man and woman. God had already created the earth and all the wonderful things which we find in it. And finally he said, Let us make man to our image and likeness, and let him have dominion over the fishes of the sea and the fowls of the air and the beasts and the whole earth and every creeping creature which moveth upon the earth. And God created man to his own image, to the image of God he created him. Male and female he created them. And God blessed them, saying, Increase and multiply and fill the earth and subdue it and rule over the fishes of the sea and the fowls of the air and all living creatures that move upon the earth. And God said, Behold, I have given you every herb bearing seed upon the earth, and all trees that have in themselves seed of their own kind to be your meat, and to all beasts of the earth, and to every fowl of the air, and to all that move upon the earth, and wherein there is life, that they may have to feed upon. And it was done, and God saw all the things which he had made, and they were very good. So we see how Almighty God has made mankind at the very summit of his creation. And indeed, we may say that God has, in a certain sense, made all of the creation for mankind. And this places an enormous responsibility upon us all. God has made us the masters, and with our mastership comes the responsibilities to represent truly the image of God here in our lives in the world. Essentially, of course, our image and likeness consists in the powers of our soul. God has given us the powers of his own divine life, of being able to know and being able to love. And by means of this knowledge and this love, which he elevates by his supernatural life of grace, he makes it possible for us not merely to know and to love things purely material, but to rise to the love of himself and the knowledge which he has in himself, and to love all things for his sake, as indeed he loves them himself. Thus we become, according to our own measure, true reflections of the divinity here upon earth. And the human race, therefore, is good, and God wills, therefore, that we should increase and multiply and fill the earth. If we are really and truly in the image of God, God wills that his image and likeness should be increased and be multiplied. This is one of the fundamental commandments which God has given to mankind. And therefore we can see that if we fail to respond to this commandment, if we follow an agenda whereby we put our own considerations, our own pleasures, before our duty to Almighty God, that we fail in one of the most fundamental aspects of what it means to be a human being. Therefore God formed man out of the slime of the earth, 
and breathed into his faith the breath of life, and man became a living soul. And what did God do with man? We are immediately told that God placed him in the, in the garden of pleasure which he had planted. And the Lord God brought forth of the ground all manner of trees, fair to behold and pleasant to eat of, the tree of life also in the midst of paradise, and the tree of knowledge of good and evil. And God took man and put him into the paradise of pleasure to dress it and to keep it. Surely these words are strange, that God placed mankind in the paradise of pleasure, which we know as the Garden of Eden, in order to dress it and to keep it. It's a fascinating thing that God placed Adam in a garden, and that there he gave him the garden in order that he should dress it and keep it. We tend to think of work as being a punishment for sin, which indeed in the present circumstances of our life it is. But we can see also that in work there is a higher significance, that by work, by improving the environment around us, we actually share in the creative work of God. And so that work which was was a blessing and therefore not a work in the sense of the onerous activity which we consider it to be now, that work was in fact a blessing. And it's fascinating to see how after the fall, after Adam had sinned, that God replaces the blessing with a curse which is essentially the same. That through work, now, we will attain to our perfection. That we will gain our salvation. And so paradoxically, it becomes a blessing once again to those who cooperate with God's grace and obey his commandments. God made man to love him. And therefore, it was necessary that this love be demonstrated. It was necessary, being placed in this garden of pleasure, that man should not be simply leading a life of pure idleness, a life of complete self-absorption. And indeed, in the perfect state in which he was created, Adam was indeed open to God and absorbed in God. But it was necessary that he should be placed under a test. That really and truly love is always proved in what we might call adversity. And so in order to prove the conformity of the will of Adam to the will of Almighty God, God commanded him, saying, Of every tree of paradise thou shalt eat, but of the tree of knowledge of good and evil thou shalt not eat. For in what day soever thou shalt eat of it, thou shalt die the day. God also said, It is not good for man to be alone. Let us make him a help like unto himself. And the Lord God, having formed out of the ground all the beasts of the earth and all the fowls of the air, brought them to Adam to see what he would call them. For whatsoever Adam called any living creature, the same is his name. And Adam called all the beasts by their names, and all the fowls of the air, and all the cattle of the field. But for Adam 
there was not found a helper like unto himself. Here we see how, although God had placed Adam at the summit of all creation, and had placed all that creation under his feet, that nevertheless, in spite of all, it was not good for him to be alone, that God willed that the whole of man's life should be an expression of love, just as the inner life of God is the expression of his true vitality, so also was man to be really made in the image of likeness of God, and that his love should overflow, and that he should also love a creature like unto himself. And so we see how as Adam was created directly by God from the slime of the earth, that in this way God makes Eve from the side of Adam, that she is really and truly a part of Adam, that she has been really made for him. And God cast a deep sleep upon Adam, and when he was fast asleep, he took one of his ribs and filled up flesh for it. And the Lord God built the rib which he took from Adam into a woman and brought her to Adam. And Adam said, This now is bone of my bones and flesh of my flesh. She shall be called woman, because she was taken out of man. Wherefore, a man shall leave father and mother, and shall cleave to his wife, and they shall be two in one flesh. This is a wonderful demonstration of the relationship between men and women that God made Eve in order to be truly a helpmate of Adam and to love Adam by her devotion to him. Therefore they lived in this garden of paradise until the day of their testing came. And the Bible tells us in just a few simple words of the nature of the temptation. Now the serpent was more subtle than any of the beasts of the earth which the Lord God had made. And he said to the woman, Why hath God commanded you that you should not eat of every tree of paradise? We see here how the devil first puts into our mind a questioning and then a curiosity. A questioning of God's goodness to us. A questioning of whether we can trust Almighty God. And indeed, we can say that the temptation was a test to see if mankind could be trusted to trust Almighty God. And already now that the doubt has been put into the woman's mind, no doubt, she had probably never even thought of approaching or of eating the tree of good and evil. After all, every other creature had been given to her for her use and for her pleasure. And the woman answered him, saying, Of the fruit of the trees that are in paradise we do eat, but of the fruit of the tree which is in the midst of paradise, God hath commanded us that we should not eat, and that we should not touch it, lest perhaps we die. Here we see how Eve has already begun to weaken, 
And with the weakness comes an assertion, a subtle assertion of self-will. God did not say that Adam and Eve could not touch of the tree. It's an exaggeration. And he did not say, lest perhaps we die. He rather said that they would die. And the serpent said to the woman, No, you shall not die the death. For God doth know that in what day soever you shall eat thereof, your eyes shall be opened, and you shall be as gods, knowing good and evil. See how here Satan contradicts the commandment of Almighty God. And he promises that by that contradiction, by acquiescence and cooperation in that contradiction, that we shall become as gods. The temptation is to place ourselves above God. Every sin, every sin which we commit, is an assertion of our own will over God's will. A usurpation, indeed, of the authority of Almighty God. And it's essentially in this that the malice of sin consists. And the woman saw that the tree was good to eat, and fair to the eyes, and delightful to behold. And she took of the fruit thereof, and did eat, and gave to her a husband who did eat. Eve failed in her vocation. Eve failed. She was to be the helpmate of Adam, and instead of helping him, she weakened him and led him into sin. Adam, of course, also failed, since he was to be the head of the human race. He also failed in his vocation, in his responsibilities, to lead Eve and to draw her ever closer to Almighty God. And the consequence of it was, the eyes of both of them were opened. And they perceived that they were naked. This nakedness has got a very great significance. It seems to be the only immediate consequence of their sin. They saw that they were naked. In other words, they became immediately self-conscious. That a barrier already arose between them, even although they were husband and wife, that they immediately became conscious of their nakedness, which means that they had become self-centered and enclosed on themselves. Self-conscious. They were now the center of their own world, rather than being open to God. Cut off from God and cut off from each other. And suddenly, when they heard the voice of the Lord God walking in paradise in the afternoon air, Adam and his wife hid themselves from the face of God amidst the trees of paradise. So as they gathered fig leaves to hide themselves from each other, so also they hid from Almighty God. And God called Adam and said, Where art thou? And Adam answered, I heard thy voice in paradise, and I was afraid. Previously there had been no fear in paradise. Previously there had been a complete openness between Almighty God 
and Adam and between Adam and Eve and God. And therefore the cause of this fear was immediately evident. And God said to them, Thou hast eaten of the tree, hast thou eaten of the tree, whereof I commanded thee that thou shouldst not eat? And Adam said, The woman whom thou gavest me to be my companion gave me of the tree, and I did eat. See how sadly Adam, instead of accepting responsibility for his sin, immediately blames Eve. And not only blames Eve, but even blames God for having given him Eve. The woman whom thou gavest me, gave me of the tree, and I did eat. See how this, this innate egoism, which is the consequence of sin, continues to assert itself and refuses even to accept the reality of our sinful nature. And then God said to the woman, Why hast thou done this? And she answered, The serpent deceived me, and I did eat. Yes, the serpent deceived her. She passes responsibility to the serpent. But Eve was not subject to the weaknesses which have become the consequence of the sin that she committed. She was perfectly able to easily resist the serpent, but she did not do so. And the Lord God said to the serpent, Because thou hast done this thing, thou art cursed among all cattle and beasts of the earth. Upon thy breast shalt thou go, and earth shalt thou eat all the days of thy life. I will put enmities between thee and the woman, and thy seed and her seed. She shall crush thy head, and thou shalt lie in wait for her heel. Here, although immediately God curses the servant, he promises blessing to mankind. He promises that another woman, as Eve had fallen, another woman would bring blessings upon mankind, and would reverse the curse which had fallen on the world as a result of Eve's sin, and foretells, foretells the Blessed Virgin Mary and her role in our redemption. Satan shall wait for her heel. And therefore to the woman he said, I will multiply thy sorrows and thy conceptions. In sorrow shalt thou bring forth children, and thou shalt be under thy husband's power, and he shall have dominion over thee. And to Adam he said, Because thou hast hearkened to the voice of thy wife, and hast eaten of the tree, whereof I commanded thee that thou shouldst not eat, cursed is the earth in thy work. With labour and toil shalt thou, bring, shalt thou eat thereof all the days of thy life. Thorns and thistles shall it bring forth to thee, and thou shalt eat the herbs of the earth. And the sweat of thy face shalt thou eat bread until thou return to the earth out of which thou wast taken. For dust thou art, and into dust thou shalt return. So God punishes Adam and Eve. And he punishes them by, first of all, telling Adam that because he had hearkened to the voice of his wife, instead of being really and truly the head of the human race, 
the head of the human family, of having failed in his responsibilities, having failed in his vocation, that henceforth he must needs work. And that through this work, which unlike the recreational work or the recreational gardening or landscaping in the Garden of Eden would be onerous, difficult, tiring, that what had already been a blessing was now to become a curse, but nevertheless would return to a blessing in due course. And to the woman he said that she should bring forth children. Indeed, she had always been intended to be the mother of the living. But in this great glory of womanhood would now also, as the work of man, have its negative aspects. I shall multiply thy sorrows and thy conception. In sorrow rather than in joy shalt thou bring forth children. But of course, this sorrow would be, as our blessed Lord himself, even here below, even here below, turned into joy, when all is accomplished, that a child, a man, should be born again into the world, and that God's image and likeness should be gloriously multiplied, as he first commanded. And, of course, he establishes the necessity of human authority. Henceforth, as the human race was to increase and to multiply, and social life was soon to begin, it was necessary that Almighty God should establish the principle of authority. And this principle of authority, which again, had the fall not taken place, would have been a source of joy and happiness to mankind, sadly, in the fallen state, often becomes a source of resentment and a source of unhappiness, that so Almighty God establishes this necessary function by saying, In sorrow shalt thou bring forth the children, and thou shalt be under thy husband's power, and he shall have dominion over thee. This is not to be taken purely as a, uh, as, uh, as a punishment to, uh, to womanhood, but rather to be taken as a necessary consequence of the ordering of human society, as from the very beginning, from Adam and Eve, right until the end of the world. And so, uh, therefore, God sent them out of the paradise of pleasure, to till the earth from which they were taken. And he cast out Adam, and he placed before the paradise of pleasure cherubims with a flaming sword, turning every way to keep the way of the tree of life. Eternal life, everlasting life, here below, was no longer a possibility for mankind. In sweat, in labor, should man work, until he should return to the dust from which he was taken.